Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who had embraced Jesus as their Messiah, but who were struggling to follow him. At the time, the temple was standing. The sacrifices were offered. The feast days were being observed. Judaism was at its zenith. Jewish friends and family were scoffing out loud at these crazy Christians. Why would anyone leave the security blanket of these ancient traditions, these venerated institutions to follow some no-name preacher from Galilee? And the pressures were also being applied. These Hebrew believers had been banished from their families, many of them excommunicated from the synagogues. Some of these Hebrews were even having their land and their property confiscated because of their faith in Christ. In short, the heat was on. The message that was being communicated to them was renounce Jesus or be banished from the Jewish community. They were being tempted to deny Christ altogether and to return to the cozy confines of their Judaism. The book of Hebrews was written to affirm and to strengthen the faith of these Jewish believers that were coming under these kinds of attacks. Hebrews explains how that Jesus is better than Judaism. He is better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than the law. Better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the priesthood. He works in a better temple. He makes better sacrifices. He makes better promises. He establishes a better covenant. God has replaced the fixtures of Judaism with faith in Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews wants to say to these believers to stand strong. They were right on when they had left behind Jewish tradition and had embraced a better way of relating to God. And the book of Hebrews warns them not to retreat. Don't go back. Whatever you do, hold on to your faith because Jesus is better than Judaism. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells all of us, it says to each of us, that Jesus is better than any other way of life. Jesus is the best. It says to you and me, be proud of Jesus Christ. Don't back down from what you believe. Stand strong and trust in your Lord Jesus. Hebrews begins with the most basic fact in the universe. It begins, God. God is. If I had ten quarters in my pocket, and if I had numbered each one of those quarters, one through ten, the odds of me pulling number one out of my pocket would be one in ten. The odds, though, of me pulling numbers one in two in succession from my pocket would be one in a hundred. The odds of pulling one, two, and three in succession from my pocket would be one in a thousand. And on it goes. In fact, the odds of me pulling one through 10 in order out of my pocket would be one in 10 billion. Understand the simplest living cells are made up of strings of amino acids. The most basic life forms contain strings of 55 of these amino acids and they all have to be assembled in exact order. The odds of these chemicals emerging by chance from a primordial soup then connecting in exact sequence to form a living cell is beyond reasonable speculation. Our planet and the burgeoning life that it contains 
can only be explained by the existence of a creator. Yes, God is. The psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to mention the second most basic fact in all the universe, that God not only exists, but that he has also spoken. This God who exists, who is, has chosen to reveal himself to us. Agnostic philosopher Christopher Morley, he wrote these words, My theology briefly is that the universe was dictated, but not signed. In other words, he accepted a creator, but he contended that the creator had chosen not to reveal himself, that he had remained silent, that he had not spoken, that he had refused to play his cards, if you will. You see, an atheist says that God does not exist. An agnostic says that God is, but he hasn't spoken. While the writer of the book of Hebrews asserts that God is and he has spoken. Verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. The Old Testament revelation of God was like the unrolling of a scroll. The divine drama was unfolded bit by bit, one portion at a time. Each prophet revealed a different facet of God's wonderful nature. And the prophets communicated their messages in various ways. Some used sermons. Others used object lessons. Still others worked miracles. But eventually, the prophets gave way to God's ultimate word to mankind, which was His Son. In fact, today, in these last days, God is speaking to mankind through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, God's revelation no longer comes to us through through prophets and through Bits and pieces. God's revelation to mankind no longer comes piecemeal. Today, God has summed up all that He has wanted to say and He's put it in a single package. Jesus is God's complete and final word to mankind. Guys, if you want to hear what God is saying today, then look to Jesus Christ. Jesus provides a superior revelation. Of God, then did the prophets. Verse 3 calls Jesus the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. Wonderful descriptions. Jesus is to God's glory. What a flash is to the light in this room. He is the blaze or the concentration of the glory of God. And Jesus is not just a representation of God, he is the express image image, we're told. In other words, he's the exact reproduction of God. He's not just similar in form, but he contains and consists of the same substance, the same stuff. He is God, not just in form, but in substance. Verses 2 and 3 teach that Jesus is both the creator and the sustainer. In the beginning, he created all things, and today he holds all things together, we're told, by the word of his power. And even closer to home, he holds my fragile life together as well. Verse 3 describes how Jesus completed his mission when he by himself purged our sins. Notice that. He by himself, he needed nobody's help. He atoned for our sin all by himself. And then we're told he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. Jesus conquered sin, and now he reigns in heaven. And all this makes Jesus not only better than the prophets, 
but also better than the angels. And keep in mind, the angels were the World Series champs this past year. But Jesus is better than the angels. In Judaism, real angels were revered highly. Too highly, in fact, they were practically worshipped. Since angels lived in the presence of God, and since they helped convey the law to Moses, angels were considered to be special mediators between God and man. Isn't it ironic how people today have come full circle? They make the same mistake. The pseudo-spirituality of our culture has become preoccupied with angelic visitations. We have all these books and movies and TV shows about angels. Everybody wants to be touched by an angel. Hebrews says it's far better to be touched by Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 quotes several Old Testament passages to prove that Jesus is superior over the angels. Jesus is the Son of God, while angels are mere servants of God. Jesus is eternal. Angels were created. Jesus is worshipped. Angels are worshippers. Verse 6 tells us that when Jesus was born, the angels of God worshipped Him. How ironic. The Jews were worshipping beings that were worshipping Jesus. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 tell us that Jesus reigns over us while the angels minister to us. I do believe in guardian angels. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to thank mine for the extra overtime hours I made him put in. But I don't trust in angels, and neither should you. I trust in their boss. You see, your angel doesn't love you. You're just an assignment to your angel. In fact, he might have a word or two for you when you get to heaven, all the hard work you put him through. Understand, it's Jesus that loves you. The angels are simply following orders, tagging along after you because Jesus told them to. Chapter 2 begins with a warning. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Now, these Hebrew believers had anchored their faith in Jesus Christ. But now they were being affected by a powerful undertow. Family pressures, Jewish traditions were causing them to drift away. And verse 2 speaks of the word that was spoken through angels. In other words, the law of Moses. And if disregard for the law of Moses brought consequences, how much more disregard for the words of Jesus Christ? This is why verse 3 warns us, How shall we then escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Notice the Spirit always backs up the truth of God. But here's the point. Drift away from that truth. The truth that's in Jesus. And the results will be disastrous. How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, quotes from Psalm 8. One night, a young shepherd boy by the name of David was gazing into a starry sky. Just marveling and admiring God's handiwork. When it suddenly hit him. He was on earth thinking about God, but God was in heaven thinking about him. And this is why he's so blown away. And he asks, he says, what is man 
that you are mindful of him. Why would God think about us? Perhaps the raw purchase, if you went out to purchase the raw materials that make up the human body, you could do so and still get change back from a $20 bill. We're, We're that inexpensive. As for our physical composition, we're not much. But you see, the value of a human being isn't wrapped up in what we are. It's wrapped up in what God intends for us to be. You see, man is valuable because we are destined to share in God's glory and God's honor. Verse 7 tells us that God made us a little lower than the angels, but one day plans to crown us with glory and with honor. Today, you see, mankind remains in a fallen state. But there's one place that we can look to get a glimpse of what man was meant to be and will one day become. Verse 9 says, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, like a man. But for the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. And one day we'll see Jesus, the man that all men were meant to be. We're told that Jesus came in the flesh to taste death for everyone. And we're told that now he is bringing many sons to glory. I love verse 10. It calls Jesus the captain of our salvation. Literally, the word captain means the trailblazer, the pioneer of our salvation. Jesus blazed a new way to God. He cut a new path. Jesus was first to achieve glory through suffering, the first to bring life from death. And now he stands on the glory side and he calls us to lay down our lives and to follow him. Verses 14 and 15 tell us that Jesus became a man And he took on flesh and blood in order to destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It reminds me of the fellow who had severe headaches. And he went to the doctor for tests. And the doctor told him that his condition was terminal. He's sorry. The man cried out, but doctor, say it ain't so. It can't be. It's terminal. The doctor replied, I'm sorry, but the results are conclusive. The man asked, well, tell me, how much time do I have left? The doctor said, ten. The man asked again. He said, ten? What do you mean, ten? Ten years? Ten months? Ten weeks? What do you mean, ten? The doctor said, nine, eight, seven, Six. Hey, the problem with life is the knowledge that we're all going to die. The fear of the countdown, it robs life of much of its joys and its happiness. Why get excited about the things you can achieve in this life if you can't take your rewards with you? Why pursue attachments to other people if death will one day end those relationships? But Jesus, you see, has released us from the fear of death. In Christ, we now see that death is but a temporary excursion for the Christian. In Christ, we can lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. In Jesus, relationships begun in this life will continue in heaven. Death can take nothing from us of any lasting value if we trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? Jesus has destroyed the fear of death. He's released us from that bondage and that worry. Now, chapter 1 of Hebrews 
it tells us that the deity of Jesus has made him superior to the angels. While in chapter 2 we're told that the humanity of Jesus also makes him better than the angels. What angel do you know of has ever gotten tired? What angel has ever gotten sleepy or felt pain or bled or was rejected by a friend? But in chapter 2, verse 18, we're told of our Lord Jesus, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus can help us in a way that no angel ever has or ever will because he's been where we're at. He has shared our sufferings. He has experienced and has overcome the human dilemma. And according to verse 17, it's this empathy that qualifies Jesus to be the perfect priest. You know, the Latin word priest means a bridge builder, which is what a priest is. He's an intermediary between God and man. He represents God to man and he represents man to God. A priest has to be faithful then to God's truth and he has to be merciful to man's needs in order to be a good priest. And of course, Jesus is the perfect high priest. He never waters down. He never distorts God's will. He is faithful. And yet he knows our needs and he knows how to meet them. He is merciful. And thus being faithful and merciful, he becomes the perfect high priest. I like verse 1 of chapter 3. It's a wonderful verse. And let me read it to you out of Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the New Testament. He writes, So, my dear Christian friends, companions in following this call to the heights, take a good, hard look at Jesus. He's the centerpiece of everything we believe. I love those words. Take a good, hard look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. Guys, this is the key to Christian living right here. Consider Jesus. Take a good, hard look at Jesus. Don't get distracted. Resist going off on theological tangents. Hey, keep the main thing, the main thing. Focus on Jesus Christ. All countries have their national heroes. And the two jewels for the Jews were Moses and Joshua. You remember Moses delivered Israel from Egypt, whereas Joshua brought them into the promised land. But in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Hebrews, we're told how that Jesus is better than both men. Verse 5 says that Moses was a servant in God's house. But what is a servant compared to a son? Moses was a hired hand. Jesus was the son of God. He's God's head of household. It reminds me of the recent meeting between Ariel Sharon and George Bush. Sharon was late and Bush was upset about it. But Sharon told him, he said, Mr. President, I'm sorry, but I was talking to someone more important than you. Well, George W. started thinking, wait a minute, what do you mean more important than the President of the United States? And he asked him, he said, who are you talking to? He said, well, Mr. President, I was talking to Moses. Well, Bush was really impressed. He said, can I talk to Moses? Sharon pulled out his cell phone, punched in a number and waited for a few minutes. And then he started whispering back and forth on the telephone. And finally, he turned to George W. Bush and he said, Mr. Bush, I'm sorry. Moses doesn't want to talk to you. He says the last time he talked to a bush, he wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Hey, 
except for one incident, except for the one incident, for 40 years, Moses did God's bidding faithfully. He led Israel out of Egypt, but he failed to lead them into the land of Canaan because of their unbelief. And this should be a lesson to us. Moses delivered the Jews from Pharaoh, whereas Jesus has delivered us from sin. And yet it is still our responsibility, like theirs, to have faith. Verse 14 reminds us that our part in God's plan is to hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. If we don't continue in our faith, if we don't hold fast to our confidence in Christ, we too can come up short of God's promises. Verse 19 tells us, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2 tells us to receive the word and then mix it with faith. This is so important. The dynamic agent, the ingredient that activates the power of God's word in our lives is faith. The word of God is like a seed, but we water that seed through faith. You see, God's promises come in powdered form. You've got to mix them with faith to gain substance, to grasp hold of that promise. In the Old Testament, God's intention was to give his people rest. Rest from their enemies, rest from their labors, rest from their hardships. And in chapter 4, verse 1 of Hebrews, we find that Israel failed to enter God's rest. But that means that there is still therefore available a rest for God's people. If Israel failed to enter in, that rest is still available. It's yet to be embraced and grasped. There's still a rest for God's people. Verse 3, for we who have believed do enter that rest. Understand, in six days God created the world and he set in motion his plan for redemption. On the seventh day, though, he rested. He rested from all his labors and God has been resting ever since. You see, God never gets uptight. God never gets stressed. Hey, God knows perfect contentment, wonderful peace. God has everything under control. God never wigs out. And you can enter into his rest. That's our promise here. Several years ago, I owned a hammock since the dog has chewed it up. And the dog has interfered with my life in many other ways. But back when I was a happy owner of a hammock, whenever I had finished my yard work, I would always go get me a glass of lemonade and then go and just sort of lay down in that hammock. I'd end up spending about an hour or so in that hammock after I'd finished mowing the grass, just admiring my work. But you know, my kids would always love to join me in that hammock. They would stop whatever they were doing. The moment dad laid down in that hammock, whatever they would do, and they would stop, climb down out of trees, they'd come in from their neighbor's house, and they'd all come running in the backyard, and everybody would want to jump into that hammock with me. You know, God invites you and me to climb into his hammock. Hey, he's done all the work. You know, my kids, they would want to get in the hammock and swing with dad. And I'm thinking, you didn't mow any grass. You didn't pull any weeds. Why are you wanting to climb into the hammock? But they love being with me. And you know, we haven't done anything to benefit God. We haven't done anything to participate in His work. And yet He invites us to come and lie down in His hammock with Him. He's done it all for us. 
But now he asks us to share in his rest. But in order to do so, we have to stop what we're doing. Even what we're doing for God, for that matter. And we have to rest in what he has done for us. You see, God has God invites us to join in his rest, not create our own rest. That's our problem. We want to create our own rest rather than relaxing and joining him in his God wants us to rejoice and take hope and find our sufficiency and realize our fulfillment in what God has done for us, not what we might be doing for Him. There is a rest for the people of God, and we find it when we put our trust in Jesus. Verses 10 and 11, though, appear to be contradictory. He says, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, As God did from his. That's interesting. But then he says, let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. Or if you're reading out of the old King James, it says, let us labor to enter that rest. Now, wait a minute. After telling us to cease from our works, we're told to labor to enter God's rest. You see, a relationship with God requires effort. But the type of effort it requires is crucial. Work to earn or deserve God's blessing will leave you stressed out and bummed out and frizzed out, frustrated. But if by faith you enter God's rest, if you enter God's rest, His perfect peace will encompass your heart. But how do you enter His rest? By faith. And what does faith require? Well, faith also requires effort. Faith is active, not passive. You see, we labor to build up our faith. It takes effort for a kid to climb into the hammock, doesn't it? God wants us to climb into the hammock, but that too requires faith. It requires effort. You see, the type of effort that God wants us to exert is not obligatory effort. It's not doing something because you have to. It's not doing something because you need to do this or that to earn God's favor. Rather, the effort God wants us to show is celebratory effort. Not obligatory effort, but celebratory effort. The Sabbath rest is what he's talking about. Remember what the Sabbath was? It was a feast day. The Sabbath was a party. And of course, it requires effort to throw a party, doesn't it? But a party is hardly viewed as work. Yes, it takes effort, but throwing a party is not labor. It's fun. It's enjoyment. You throw a party because you want to, not because you have to. It's a joy. And hey, if you want to enter God's rest, it does require effort. But it's the kind of effort you use to throw a party. It's celebratory effort, not obligatory effort. If you want to enjoy God's rest, live your life like a party in God's honor. That's how you enter God's rest. Verse 12 tells us of the power of God. It is living, it is powerful, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, the word of God, it's active, it's effective, it's incisive. And not only is it a weapon that we can use against the enemy, it's a surgical instrument that we can use on ourselves. God's word untangles faith from flesh, faith from fear. Study it and we train our hearts to differentiate between what's heavenly and what's human. I love this. The word of God is living. You know, fishermen will tell you it's always best to fish with live bait. 
And the Word of God is live bait. You can see it wiggle in the water. Fish with the Word of God. And you'll catch many fish. Study the Word, then share it with others. Chapter 4 ends by reminding these Hebrews of the priesthood of Jesus. Through His work on the cross, Jesus secured for you and me access to the throne of God. In other words, there are always tickets at the will call window in heaven in my name. Can you imagine? Jesus has earned for me access before the throne of God. In fact, He tells us I can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time for need. His grace is tailor-made for human aid. It's what I need when I need it most. I love Hebrews 4 verse 16. Again, from Eugene Peterson's pen, he says, So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy. Accept the help. Won't you do that tonight? Contact lenses are a relative. uh, They're really a new invention. If you go back even to the 40s and 50s, you'll realize that contact lenses even then were a novelty item. If you had vision problems, you, more often than not, 99% of the time, you wore eyeglasses. But one night, there was an elderly motorist who was wearing contact lenses. And she was pulled over by the police. And when the officer checked the woman's license, she dis- he discovered that it required her to wear glasses while she was driving. Obviously, the woman wasn't wearing any glasses and Apparently, she was in violation of these special conditions. And and the officer rebuked the woman. She responded, though, Officer, I have contacts. And the policeman shook his head and he said, Lady, I don't care who you know, you still got to wear eyeglasses. (laughs) You know, it is true. Sometimes it's not as much what you know that matters as it is who you know. Contacts. Connections get you a long way in life and in the life to come. And that's what chapters 5 through 7 are all about. In Judaism, the priest played a pivotal role. He was the only one who could offer sacrifice and enter God's temple. The priest was the go-between. And that's the subject of chapters 5 through 7, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 lists a few of the characteristics of a good priest. He has empathy. He's not self-appointed. Rather, he's called by God. And of course, both characteristics were true of Jesus. Verse 5 quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. Verse 6 quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. And both predict that the Messiah's priesthood, it, it predicts elements of the Messiah's priesthood. Jewish priests, remember, were descendants of the tribe of Levi. You might say in the Old Testament, in order to be a priest, you had to have Levi genes. But Jesus was a priest of a different order. We're told here that he was of the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 5, though, focuses on the intercessory role of Jesus while on earth. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus took on his priestly functions. We're told when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. 
The writer has much to say about the priesthood of Jesus, and he will say it. He'll explain it over in chapter 7. But in verse 11 of chapter 5, he bemoans the fact that the Hebrews are not quite ready for these heavier truths. They're like babies. They can drink the milk, but they can't chew on the meat. It reminds me of Zach Steinkert of Bloomingburg, New York. When Zach was 17 months old, he was three feet tall and he weighed 68 pounds. 17 months, three feet tall, 68 pounds, the size of your average nine-year-old. Zach's t-shirts were size 14 and he was wearing adult diapers, adult-sized diapers. His parents consulted the doctors. They were worried about some kind of glandular disorder. But the doctors assured the Stankerts that Zach was just a big baby. Sadly, that's the problem with many Christians. They're just big babies. They've never put to practice the truths they've been taught. And thus, they've never gone beyond the basics of Christianity. Verse 14 says that it's by reason of use. Notice, it's not by what you hear. It's by what you use that our senses are exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words, you deepen your capacity to learn more. You grow as a Christian, not by what you hear, but by what you use, what you put into practice. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 lists the spiritual basics. He says, repentance from dead works and a faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. It's interesting. Apparently, the life and earthly ministry of Jesus is what constitutes the milk of the word, while his heavenly priestly ministry is what constitutes the meat. Think about it. Jesus spent just 30 some odd years on earth, but he spent the last 2,000 years in heaven. I think the deeper truths relate to the priesthood and the priestly functions of what Jesus is doing on our behalf today. The problem, though, is that the writer can't go on into these deeper truths because his readers are bogged down. And he warns them in verse 4 of chapter 6, For it is impossible... For those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Remember when Bill Clinton made his infamous statement, I smoked, but I never inhaled. You you remember that? Well, these Hebrews could not make such a statement. No, they inhaled. They tasted salvation. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. They were enlightened. These are all strong words. They obviously were legitimate Christians. And yet Hebrews 6 warns them of the danger of falling away. And forfeiting their salvation. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus is God's only provision for sin. Thus, how can you be saved while saying no to the Savior? 
How can you be saved by treating his sacrifice as nothing when he is the only provision for sin that God has made? And you see, that's what they were in danger of. By going back to Judaism, by retreating back to those old ways, they were going to be putting Christ to an open shame. They would be trampling underfoot the Son of God. They would be making mockery of the work that Jesus had done for them. Of course, this passage raises another question. If they forfeit salvation, can they never get it back? Notice the passage says it is impossible to renew them again. I think the NIV gives an alternate reading of verse 6 that I think answers the question. The phrase, since they crucify again, is rendered while they are crucifying again. In other words, as long as a person is in an unbelieving state, he can't be saved. If salvation is by faith in Jesus, and yet if a person's in an unbelieving state, how can they be saved? Refuse to trust in Jesus, and you can't be renewed to repentance. You've rejected God's only provision for sin. But the verses don't address what happens if that person returns to faith once more. And I personally believe that no matter what you've done, as long as you're breathing, the opportunity still exists for you to be saved. Once you turn back and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then repentance can be achieved again. Verse 9 The writer of Hebrews says that he has higher hopes for his readers. He reminds them, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. These Hebrew believers were being persecuted. And they needed a reminder that this tide would one day turn. That in the end, it does pay to live a good and godly life. God remembers your work and your labor. He's not unjust to forget what you've done for him. Verse 12 reminds us that to receive God's promises, we have to have both faith and patience. Not just faith, not just patience, but both faith and patience. And the classic example, of course, was Abraham. At times he had faith and no patience. At other times he had patience and no faith. You need both faith and patience to inherit God's promises. In chapter 7, the author turns back to this subject of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the story once a little girl, she came home from Sunday school. She was so excited about the power of God. And she was telling her mother, Mom, God can do anything. He works miracles with his left hand. And he heals with his left hand. And he holds us close with his left hand. The mother was excited that her little girl was in awe of God's power, but she couldn't understand this fixation with God's left hand. And so she said to her, Honey, God can also use his right hand. And that's when the little girl said, No, Mom, we learned in Sunday school this morning that Jesus is sitting on his right hand. (laughs) Hey, this little girl was a little confused. Jesus is not sitting on God's right hand. He's sitting at God's right hand. And Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 teach us that when the resurrected Christ ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. And today, he is there functioning as our high priest, ever living to make intercession for us. The temple priests were from the family of Levi. But Jesus was of the family of Judah. Thus, how could Jesus be a priest? He's from the wrong tribe. This was the question that these Hebrews were pondering. The answer, though, is found in a Messianic psalm that predicted the Messiah's ministry. 
Psalm 110, verse 4, said that Jesus would be a priest, not after the order of Levi, but after the order of a man named Melchizedek. And chapter 7 explains why a priest after the order of Melchizedek was a far better priest than one who was a priest after the order of Levi. Thus, Jesus was a superior priest. Verses 1 through 4 introduce Melchizedek. Genesis 14 says that he was the priest to whom Abraham paid his tithes. Verse 1 says that he was both a king and a priest. You remember, under the law of Moses, that was prohibited. There was a separation between church and state. The priests were from the tribe of Levi. The kings were from the lineage of Judah. And again, this confused the Hebrews. How could Jesus hold in his hand both the crown and the censer? How could he be both a king and a priest? And again, Melchizedek is the key that unravels the mystery. Because Messiah is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the Levitical rules no longer apply. And thus Jesus could be both a king and a priest. Verse 3 says of Melchizedek that he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. The FBI would have had a hard time doing a background check on Melchizedek. Had no parents, had no birthday, had no date of death. And this is why many scholars believe that this man Melchizedek was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews saw a precedent being established with Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and was blessed by Melchizedek. This was a big deal in the mind of the writer of Hebrews. For verse 7 concludes, Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. In other words, when Abraham put himself under Melchizedek's authority, he accepted that the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to him and to his descendants the tribe of Levi that would be born of Abraham. And this is how the writer of Hebrews asserts that Jesus is superior to the Levites. The Levites were priests by virtue of their pedigree. They were born into the right tribe. That's what made them priests. Whereas Melchizedek was a priest by virtue of his character and his endless life. And this too is what qualifies Jesus as our high priest. He lived both a sinless life and an endless life. Levitical priests were sinners. And thus they had to make sacrifice for themselves before they made sacrifice for others. In addition, their ministry was temporary. It was interrupted by their own death. But Jesus is a priest forever and therefore he can make intercession for us for eternity. In other words, when Jesus is on the job, you can count on favorable treatment from God for all eternity. Those who possess an eternal Savior also possess an eternal confidence. Verse 25 tells us, Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since we always, since He always lives to make intercession for them. You know, I have heard people say of some struggling saint, oh, look at that guy over there. If he gets to heaven, it'll be by the skin of his teeth. Uh, He'll barely make it. But you know, that's not true. Nobody who's saved by Jesus Christ barely gets saved. 
Nobody barely makes it to heaven. Nobody makes it to heaven by the skin of their teeth because when Jesus saves you, He doesn't do it halfway. When Jesus saves you, friend, you're as saved as you can get. Jesus is not only able to save us, He saves us fully and completely. He saves us to the uttermost. I like that. He's taken me from the guttermost to the uttermost. From a guy who you wouldn't think would ever get saved. And now I'm as saved as I can get because I trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus saves us. He saves us fully. And He keeps us saved for all eternity. Jesus has saved us from the guttermost to the uttermost. And verse 27, it sums up Jesus' priesthood. He does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. His sacrifice was once for all. You know, the potency of a cleanser is measured by the number of applications needed to get out the stain. And the Levitical sacrifices... They proved to be not very potent at all because they had to be offered continually, perpetually. They never got out the dirt. But Jesus was offered once for all. One application of the blood of Jesus Christ is all it takes to remove sin from your life once and for all. Guys, you couldn't get a better priest than Jesus Christ. And like all priests... Jesus is not without His temple. Chapter 8 explains that the earthly temple was a mere replica. It was a small-scale model of the heavenly temple. Understand, when Moses walked down from Mount Sinai, he had commandments, those two tablets in one hand, but he had a set of blueprints in the other. Verse 5 tells us that God gave to Moses plans for the tabernacle. It was called a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But this meant the Levitical priests were only working in the model, whereas Jesus conducted His priestly duties in the real tabernacle, in the heavenly tabernacle. In other words, Judaism was a toy religion. It was played in a dollhouse. But those who believe in Jesus, they have access to a real priest who goes into the real temple there in heaven itself. And that's not our only advantage. Again in verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also is a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. A better covenant and better promises. The writer of Hebrews in the last part of chapter 8 quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34. It's the promise of the new covenant. Old Testament saints, you see, they knew the necessity of a new covenant. The old covenant exposed our sin, but it did nothing to expunge our sin. It convicted us, but it couldn't save us. God knew that we needed a new covenant, and that's what He promised us. And this new covenant, it has three elements. God promises us a new heart. He promises us a new start. And He promises us a new part. Verse 10 says that God will write His law In our hearts. You see, under the old covenant, God's law was written on stone tablets. It was an external standard you had to live up to. But under the new covenant, God writes His law on our hearts. 
He puts His desires into our hearts. He makes His will instinctive and intuitive. When you become a Christian, suddenly your instinctive desire is to love God and to love others and to keep His commandments. God works from the inside out. He gives us a new heart. Verse 12 says, but we get a new start. God forgives and forgets their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more, he says. What a promise. And then a new part. What's our part in all this? It's to simply believe. Trust in his promise. And it's yours. Verse 13 says of this new covenant. A new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, Judaism, the Old Testament, had become obsolete. God had struck a new deal with mankind. Guys, today we are living under a new covenant. But some of us still live as if we were under that old. Still putting the pressure on us. Still living by our works and our own efforts rather than trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is a rest for the people of God. But you enter it by faith. You trust in His rest. Hey, we're living under the new covenant. That's why we need to stop living as if we were under the old. Chapter 9 begins with a description of the tabernacle that Moses constructed. And the writer recalls the furniture. The outer court contained the lampstand and the table of showbread. Associated with the inner court was the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 4 tells us the, tells us the three elements that were contained within the Ark. There was a sample of manna, a jar of manna. There was a, the rod of Aaron's that budded. And then there was the two tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments. He even mentions the two golden cherubim that hovered over the mercy seat. And note the end of verse 5 of chapter 9. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. What a bummer. Don't you wish he could have? Don't you wish he'd inserted an extra chapter going into detail all of the significance of these pieces of furniture? His point, though, in outlining the tabernacle's floor plan was to comment on the path of the priests. You see, they entered the outer court on a daily basis, but not the inner court or the holy of holies. This is the place where God dwelt. And only one man, the high priest, entered and only once a year and never without the blood of a sacrifice. Verse 8 says this was the Holy Spirit's way of indicating that the way to God was not yet open to all men. Access to God had yet to be obtained. Physical washings and rituals weren't able to affect the spiritual cleansing that we spiritual beings needed. But Jesus enters the spiritual temple with a spiritual sacrifice. In chapter 9, verse 12, it says that Jesus entered heaven not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all having obtained eternal redemption. Rather than a superficial cleansing that purifies only the flesh, verse 14 says that Jesus is now able to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What the law failed to do, 
what all of those millions of sacrifices failed to accomplish, Jesus has accomplished with one sacrifice, his own sacrifice in his own blood. He has now opened up the holy place, the holy of holies, so that through him we can enter in and we can enjoy and know and live in God's presence. You see, under the old covenant, people were basically paroled. But under the new covenant, we have been fully pardoned. Verse 19 takes us back to the dedication of the Old Covenant. After reading the law, Moses sprinkled blood on the book and on the tabernacle and on all the people. And if all this was done for an inferior covenant, how much more should be done to dedicate the real heavenly temple? Verse 23 says, The heavenly things should be dedicated with better sacrifices than these. And he assures us that that's exactly what's been done. That Jesus does not come once a year with the blood of bulls and goats. Verse 26 tells us that Jesus came once at the end of the ages. So Christ offered once to bear the sins of many. Verse 27 tells us, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. And this is an important verse. It proves that there is no such thing as reincarnation. You get no second chances. No opportunities to start over in another form. You die once, and then there's the judgment. When you die, don't expect long tunnels and fluffy clouds and bright lights. C.S. Lewis tells us what to expect the moment following our death. He says, there will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And I hope you take it. I hope you've chosen to follow Jesus Christ. He is the better way. He is better than the prophets. He is better than the angels. He is better than the law. He is better than Moses. He is better than Joshua. He's a better priest. He works in a better temple. He makes better promises. He strikes better covenants. He offers a better sacrifice. Guys, be proud of Jesus Christ. He is better than every other way. Hold fast to Him. Never, ever let go. Father, thank You for Your Word tonight. Thank you for these wonderful chapters and how it just makes us proud of our Savior and our Lord. He is so much better. Lord, help us to hold fast to Him. Help us hold fast to the confidence we have in Christ, firm to the end. Lord, help us to walk by faith and to enter the rest, Your rest, that You have done for us. Lord, we love You. We praise You. We ask that you bless our week. Help us, Lord, to be light and witnesses this week. Lord, help us to remember that it's the rubbing that brings out the shine. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.